Thank you, choir. Lord, we pray now that you would draw our attention to your word. We pray, Lord, that every time we encounter your word, that we'll be reminded that um, it is more about transformation than information. And we pray that you would work through it today in our hearts, that there would be real life change in us, even if we've been walking with you for a long time. And Lord, that you might help others who are seeking to understand who you are, to understand the gospel, to be able to put the picture together more fully in their minds and their hearts today. Those who are new believers, we pray that God, you would encourage them. And Lord, just help this to be a step of growth as we interact with this text. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that uh, God, we will be people who live with a joy that, uh, Lord, the world cannot understand and a life rooted in daily, literally moment by moment, thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> a tradition that some families will observe in just a few days is to list or tell that for which each person is thankful. Uh, sometimes, and maybe you do this in different ways in your home, but sometimes it's done around the dinner table in conjunction with the Thanksgiving meal. Have you ever, uh, you know, pass out little strips of paper to write down that for which you are thankful, and then you come around and share that, or you write them down and you give your slip of paper to somebody else, and you end up reading what the other person is thankful for on that uh, day of Thanksgiving. It's a great time to remind ourselves of the countless blessings we have from the hand of the Lord. A few months ago, and we alluded to this uh, when it came out, but just um, if you'd realize it today, it's a current story, an important story, and illustrates well what we're talking about today. A few months ago, the movie Sully came out recounting the experience of the people on flight 1549 heading to Charlotte, North Carolina, that hit a flock of birds on takeoff and had to uh, ditch in the Hudson River, the miracle on the Hudson, as you know it is now dubbed. And uh, Captain Sully Sullenberger will ever remain a national hero for saving the lives of everybody on board with his quick thinking and skillful landing of a jetliner on the water, uh, which providentially did not end in tragedy, which it usually does end in tragedy when you try to land uh, something that large and moving that fast on a body of water. And so it really is a miracle. If you've not seen the movie, I encourage you to do so. And you know, when the movie was produced and came out, there were a number of reunion meetings, um, times of getting together with the, uh, the people who had been on board, who had been spared, and reuniting with uh, the captain. And uh, so a lot of that came out in the, in the news. There were headlines like, quote, as Sully premieres, passengers of flight 1549 remain grateful. And so that was true. One passenger, Jim Whittaker, an architect from Charlotte who boarded the flight at the last minute, he was a standby passenger, think about this, he's a standby guy, and he gets on at the last minute. (laughs) I bet he won't ever do that again. But nevertheless, when he survived, he said this. He said um, a few months ago, he says, you realize how thankful you are that, well, I'm alive, my family's still here, I still have my faith. And so he realizes how thankful you are in relationship to that near loss of his life, 
And he had nothing that he could have done in that moment really to save his life. It was all at the mercy of God that this man lived. You know, exploring the theme of thanks is one that is certainly appropriate as we come up to this time of the year. And while it is something that should characterize our lives every day, it is a good time to be stirred up. Peter talks about in his epistle of writing certain things to stir us up by way of reminder in the Christian life. And so we've set this date aside on the calendar, so it is a good time to stir us up in the direction we should go by way of reminder in relationship to living a life of thanks. And I do want to remind us today that giving thanks is certainly something that's on the Lord's mind in our interaction with Him. And we know that by the story we find in the Gospel of Luke I want to draw upon today, where Jesus encounters some very sick men in a message I've entitled, Living Thanks. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be reading from Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, as we think about living thanks. So the Bible says, now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This event in Jesus' life, took place very late in his ministry. You'll notice the text says, now on his way to Jerusalem. So we're moving into the last days of Jesus' earthly life. He is making his way down to Jerusalem to die. And yet he is still taking time to touch hurting people. His emphasis and concern is for others, is it not? Even as he's along the way to die. He ever stands as our model of ministry, does he not? Outward focused, always seeking to uh, help hurting people. And as we look at these men he encountered, two things stand out about them. One is that they are lepers. And the second thing is that nine of them appear to be Jewish and one of them is a Samaritan. So nine of them or all ten of them really, but nine of them just have one strike against them and they have this in common and that is they are lepers. Now leprosy is a horrible disease and in some places in the world it seems to be making a comeback. In the Bible the word for it can be applied to a wide range of skin conditions, but if it is full-blown leprosy, Hansen's disease, it is basically a slow death sentence. Then there was no treatment, and eventually, as you see with this person, parts of the body would deteriorate and fall away. And when one had this disease, he or she was segregated from the population. The Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, talks about that segregation from the rest of the population. 
And they also had to yell a warning if anybody was coming near them that uh, they, they were a person that was unclean. They were spiritually unclean. They were physically uh, sick. And so they had to keep a distance. Now, there's no specific space distance that they're told to keep, but one ancient authority, and putting it in our uh, metric or our way of measuring things, said that they were supposed to stay away about 50 yards. And thus, we see as Jesus approached them, notice what the Bible says in verse 12. It says, as he was going into a village, two men who had, ten men who had leprosy met him. And notice it says, they stood at a what? Distance. And they cried out with a, a loud voice. They were used to doing that because they had to keep a distance. And they had to cry out. But this time they cried out differently. They shouted to Jesus to help them. Now, the other thing that stands out, as I said, the text brings out that one of the men is a Samaritan. And, you know, Samaritans had no contact uh, with the Jews, Jews and Samaritans. As a matter of fact, you'll notice in the text, Jesus says about this man in verse uh, uh, 18, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner. They were looked at as half-breeds, foreigners. They had nothing to do with one another, Jews and Samaritans. They were seen as half-breeds and unclean. But, you know, affliction has a way of making strange bedfellows. All of them had leprosy. All of them were outcasts from their people. And so they had huddled together for mutual support, mutual protection. And so we see all ten of them together. Nine Jews, one Samaritan. And they're all seen not only as being physically sick, but as being afflicted by God. That they're under the hand of God. And so in this, they are, again, driven together. Now, from a spiritual perspective, then, the Samaritan has two strikes against him. He is the most hopeless of cases. He has leprosy, which is going to kill him. And furthermore, he is a Samaritan. Two strikes against him. And so he has a physical malady and then the spiritual aspect But Jesus, however, we're reminded, says that he came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. And here we really begin to see what the idea of lost is about. I don't think our culture thinks very clearly today about this word lost. What it means to be lost. You can't really ever be found until you understand what it means to be lost. And so this text helps us see that. And so Jesus, with the word He commands them to go and show themselves, it says, to the priests. There are ten guys, so there are going to be multiple priests. And while they turn and make their way, exercising faith in his word, they begin the journey to see the priests, they are healed. Why were they going to see the priests? Well, the law required that if you were healed of your skin condition, to be readmitted into the community, you had to go and be uh, observed and inspected by the priest. It was uh, looking at your skin. Think about going to the dermatologist. And the dermatologist saying you are, you're physically clean. But also in the priest idea, you are spiritually clean, right? And you're able then to be readmitted into the community. And so that's what's taking place. After they realize that they're healed though, nine of them go on their way. We never hear from them again. One of them returns. And it's the Samaritan, ironically. And so Jesus here, in some ways, this is bringing out the point that we see over and over in the Gospels. The Jews for whom he had been sent, his own people, they rejected him. 
But it was the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the world begins to open up to Christ Jesus as the Savior. Some Jews come to Him, but many miss it. Now, as we interact with this very powerful, miraculous story of healing and this man that Jesus uh, interacts with who comes back, who responds properly in faith regarding Jesus the Messiah, we learn some wonderful things. And it is such a miraculous story, such a wonderful story. And by the way, let me just uh, kind of give you a sidebar here. No ancient source, no critic in ancient history ever questioned the miraculous powers of Jesus when he was walking on the earth. The only reason people today would question the miraculous powers of Jesus, we have the same text, the same stories that they had. The only reason people today reject the miraculous nature of Jesus Christ is because they adopt the philosophical position that miracles are not possible, which is a self-contradictory position. Maybe you're here today and you hear me reading about a miracle and you say, you know, um, this can't be true. Uh, Miracles don't happen. Well, I want you to know that whether or not you realize what you've done, you've adopted a popular philosophical position out of the 20th century that was also debunked in the 20th century. That movement basically said this, that for a statement to be true or meaningful in any way, such as the statement, Jesus did miracles, which is what I'm saying here, that one has to prove that miracles take place, like through the test tube or in some way. So in the 20th century, that was an approach to knowing, but it was, it was, it was debunked, it was rebuked, because If you say, in the idea, how does one prove the statement as meaningful, which says this, for miracles to be true, one has to prove that miracles take place, which is what the critics would say. How do you prove that statement? You cannot prove that statement. That is a statement of faith. So that whole approach to knowing in the 20th century through a movement called logical positivism was rejected. And so when I say Jesus did miracles, the evidence points to the fact that Jesus did miracles. If somebody says that can't be a true statement, unless you prove it somehow, how do you prove the statement you just made? You cannot prove it in the way you're trying to tell me to prove that there are miracles. Now back off of the sidebar. That was for anybody in here who kind of had your hair stand up on the back of your neck when I started talking about a miracle. So anyway, as we interact with this story in the context of giving thanks, what do we see? A miracle has taken place. Everybody in history, Jesus did miracles nobody else ever did. In the scope and the magnitude, nobody has ever repeated them. He did miraculous things because he was God. So what do we learn from this? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, just two things today, and we've kind of abbreviated the service a little bit with the music and Hopefully the message in light of the deacon election. I use the word hopefully there. First of all, let's talk about the greatest gift. This story reminds us that we've been given the greatest gift for which we should give great thanks. In this encounter with Jesus, we clearly see that we should live in constant awe and wonder and in continual thanksgiving for who He is and what He has done and particularly the great mercy of God that has been given to us. There are so many bubbles of truth that rise up from this text. 
But one is that it gives us a great picture of what is at the core of true salvation. And why salvation has to take place the way that it does. When Jesus comes into the range of the voices of these men, I want you to look back in the text. What do they ask him to do? What do they ask Jesus to do? Look at verse 13. They called out in a loud voice, read it with me, Jesus, Master, have pity on us, have mercy on us. I want you to hang on to that word, mercy, having pity on us. This is why this text brings out so well the greatness of salvation and why it teaches us that we should be people filled with praise and adoration as was this Samaritan when we grasp what has taken place in this great gift. You see, with what is wrong with them, they have no hope unless Jesus Christ does something for them. They cannot heal themselves. No one else can heal them. They are seen as being under the judgment of God. Their disease is a constant reminder of this. They need a miracle. And Jesus works a miracle in their lives. He ultimately heals them physically. And yet something deeper takes place. They don't just have a physical problem. The physical problem is pointing to a deeper problem that we all have. That's why these stories are here. And we see that with this one guy who goes back, this Samaritan. It's ironic, he's the one that goes back. And he returns and receives the greatest healing needed, the healing of his soul. Most scholars, and Luke follows this as a theme in his gospel, most scholars understand that the idea here is that this Samaritan went back and he received eternal life. For he recognized that Jesus was the one before he was to kneel. The one before he was to yield. The others did not. And you'll notice in the text in verse uh, 19, Jesus says to him, after he has come back. Now, he's already been healed physically, right? He's walking on his way to see the priest. And all of a sudden, his skin is as white as snow. Healed in that sense. And the leprosy had a whiteness to it as well. But he's healed. And so he turns and goes back. He's already physically healed. And he goes back and he falls at Jesus' feet. And he gives him praise and thanksgiving. And Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. But the word that is used here is the word related to the word sozo. And often in the Gospels, that word is in relationship to salvation. Your faith has saved you. Just like the woman who was anointing Jesus, her faith has saved her. He recognized the centrality of Jesus, whereas the Jews did not recognize the centrality of Jesus. The other nine wanted only what Jesus could do for them temporally and their earthly needs to be met. They wanted a cursory encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, where did they go? I just did something wonderful for them physically. You know, the Bible says that God's kindness brings us to repentance. God is kind. He acts kindly toward all people. Believers and unbelievers. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, right? So Jesus has just done something kindly for them, which was to lead to what the Samaritan did, to come back and give thanks and to bow to Jesus, to be saved, and they didn't do it. They are like the people the writer of Hebrews talks about in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, in one of those 
warning passages that we find. They're like Judas. They get close to Jesus. They see Jesus in a sense. They understand something about him. They may have some experience. But Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 says this, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. That's what they've just experienced, the powers of the coming age when ultimate healing takes place. It is impossible, it says, those who have done that and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. This Samaritan received more than physical healing He received life, for he knelt in praise, and he exercised faith in Jesus. Your faith has sozo saved you. You know, when you and I really understand what salvation is and experience it, it will elicit from us a sense of glory and wonder and praise. Like these lepers, we were under the penalty of physical death. We're all dying in this room. Every one of us. I don't care if you're a teenager, you're in the process. Your body's going to peak out at about 25, and then it's downhill. (laughs) It's good to know. We're all under the penalty of physical death. And yet, at a much deeper level, we are spiritually dead. And we were destined for eternal separation from God. There was nothing you and I could do to solve that, to to ameliorate our situation before God. We couldn't improve it in any way. We needed mercy. We needed God to act and to give us something that we could never have apart from His action. And that is what Jesus Christ is all about. The story illustrates for us the greater story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way there to die for this man's sins, for all of these men's sins and our sins. And the only way we can have eternal life is to have his mercy applied to us. His mercy is that he doesn't give us what we deserve because he took the sin and the death that we deserved into himself, and he experienced all of the effects and consequences of it for us, namely the wrath of God and death on our behalf. And he did that so that he could heal us, save us, as he did this particular man. Have you understood Christianity in those terms? I so fear, oh, I so fear That in our culture, so many today do not understand Christianity in those terms. We have shifted the gospel, the good news, from really being good news because we really don't diagnose and help people see that you really need mercy because you're in a helpless situation as much as these lepers were in a helpless situation And the disease of sin has afflicted you much more than you can even see. It has warped your soul and it is setting you up for eternal separation from God. And so have you come to Jesus Christ to be your Savior because you realize that for salvation, something needs to be done in relationship to your sins that have separated you from God. 
and that you desperately need mercy to the point that you cry out for mercy in salvation. That it isn't simply adding Jesus to something in my life or responding to some feeling that I have. And I I don't discount the Holy Spirit convicts us. I experience the Holy Spirit's conviction and there is a a temp, a, 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 an existential aspect of that, a feeling sometimes in relationship to that. I remember the gripping work of the Holy Spirit in my life calling me to be a Christian. But understand, coming to be a Christian means that I come and I kneel before Jesus in submission and worship to receive from Him what I have no hope for getting if He doesn't touch me and deliver me and help me to deliver me from my sins. Christianity is not adding Jesus to life to make life better. That is an ancillary, a wonderful effect that comes through it ultimately. It may make life more difficult, though. It may make life much harder to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said, count the cost. If you're coming to Jesus because you think that this is trajectory and life's always going to go smoothly because I'm a Christian, you've not understood Christianity. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Did he not? Count the cost. Die to self. All those things. And we do that in response to the fact that he is our only hope. And we come to him. That's why when the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is calling on Jesus. Have mercy upon my soul. For I am lost. I am lost. So it isn't about cursorily calling on Jesus to help us and then walking away. It is receiving the benefit of His mercy and the giving then of our total allegiance to Him in response to His giving to us our very lives. And you know, if we can really grasp the depth of our sin and the greatness of His mercy given to us as a gift, all of life will then become for us a life filled with and built upon thanksgiving. Those people on that flight with Sully Sullenberger, they received temporal help and deliverance simply by virtue of the fact that he was the one piloting the plane. They were completely in a position where they needed to be spared, and God chose to spare them through that instrument. And our salvation, in a much more serious way, is something that we can only have by the mercy of God. That He doesn't give us what we deserve. And that is that eternal separation. And he, he gives to us His great gift of grace and forgiveness and acceptance. All those beautiful pictures. He adopts us into His family. He forgives us of all of our sins. He births us again. The picture of the new birth being born again. Right? All those wonderful things. He declares us totally not guilty. He justifies us. He declares us righteous by counting for us Jesus' sinless life. All of that is something he applies to us, but we must receive that gift. And it comes by crying out to him and understanding our great need that I'm helpless apart from Jesus. That's what true salvation is about. That's what the great gift is about. And that, when you understand it, is how you will come to a point in your life of understanding to live a life of thanks because you received the greatest gift. But then secondly, as we think about what we find in this interaction here, when we think about thanksgiving, we must not limit it to the idea of simply saying or even feeling gratitude. In the New Testament, those who are truly thankful for the gift they received in Christ demonstrate it throughout life. 
And so secondly, we should think about the acts, plural, of thanksgiving. The acts of thanksgiving. I know, um, and I know Herman, uh, he even has stickers on his truck. Uh, some of you watch Andy Griffith reruns. Um, they're still available around here. Some of you could even uh, quote the plot at times. And they, I think, still pretty much run all the way around, the, you know, all over the country. Anyway, there was one episode where um, Andy, the sheriff, he goes into Wally's filling station and he, he saves Gomer's life, in a sense, and it's called Andy Saves Gomer. That's the episode. One description of the plot says, when Andy stops by the gas station to give Gomer a letter he's received from Barney, the deputy, who's visiting his cousin Virgil for a holiday, he finds the mechanic asleep in a chair and a small fire burning a nearby drum. And so Andy puts the fire out, which really wasn't much of a fire. And Gomer decides that Andy has saved his life, and the whole episode is built around that. The real problem, however, is that Gomer, because Andy has saved his life, he's decided that nothing is too good for the man who has saved his life. And so the rest of the sto story is that he's waiting on ha Andy hand and foot, right? He's cleaning the windows, he's cutting the grass, he's offering to drive him around. He can't get rid of him because he's trying to serve him all the time because he saved his life. It's a great episode. You know, in this text, the Samaritan, he returns to give thanks because Jesus has saved his life physically and then Jesus saves his life spiritually and Jesus acknowledges that it is the right thing to do to return to him to give thanks. Jesus says, where are the other nine? Jesus is saying it is always the right thing in response to me is to turn and to give thanks. Where are the other nine? Do they not realize what I have done for them? Do they not realize what more I want to do for them? And when we tr have truly come to see who Jesus is and grasp the degree of our deliverance, we'll see that thanksgiving is the perspective with which we should do all of life. And we should live thankfully in concrete ways before the Lord, as Gomer was trying to do before Andy. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but much of what we find in the New Testament about the Christian life is rooted in the soil of thanksgiving. So today I'm wanting us to see the greatest gift, and make sure we receive that greatest gift, that we needed mercy. And from that, when you really understand that, we ought to have a heart of gratitude because we received something from the Lord we could never gain or earn. We've received the greatest thing. Forgiveness of our sins. Eternal life. I'm going to live forever. A new heaven and a new earth where I will be glorified and I'll share in all that Jesus has to share with me. Someday I'll be perfected to the point I won't ever sin again. I'll be, at that point, glorified. My life here, if I'm fortunate with my lifeline of my family, with the men, I'll make it to, you know, 75 to 80. That's less than 20 years. It's okay, honey. <laughs> but you think about that. This is just the beginning, though, of my life. I have eternal life. Do you have eternal life? 
is crying out to Jesus for mercy. So I want you to understand that that is the basis for all of life. But then as we explore then what does it look like then to follow Jesus? Did you know that there are acts of thanksgiving and that Christian discipleship is really built around that concept? So let me show you this morning. I don't know if you ever noticed it or not, but let's look at a few of these. First of all is the idea of worship. You know, if we are properly thankful for the mercy Jesus has shown us in salvation, it will lead to acts of continual worship. It will be worship that is both personal and public. You remember the story we read in our scriptural call to worship in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 where that woman is anointing Jesus? And Jesus here in this story is contrasting how he is often treated by those who invite him into their home, as Simon did, into their lives, as opposed to how he should be treated. How Jesus should be treated should be how this woman was treating him. Washing his feet with her tears, anointing him, right? Praising him, thanking him. It's a wonderful act of personal worship. Thankful worship for his great gift of salvation. Does that describe your life? Is your life in your private time, when nobody else is looking... How much of your life is is bound up in being that person that is before Jesus Christ in personal adoration and worship of Jesus, as opposed to asking Jesus for stuff? Is it really adoring Him and praising Him for His great mercy that He has shown you in your life? Before the Lord in your own heart, what does life look like for you in that way? Is personal worship of Jesus really a part of our lives? You know, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, in verse 15, talking about worship, and there's so many other places that we could look in the Scripture about the idea of worship, but Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. Do you understand? Here's the picture of worship, but it's in the context of thanksgiving thanksgiving to the Lord. Then what about public worship? We've all heard people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You ever heard anybody say that? I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, you know, that could technically be true. The thief on the cross, when he was being impaled there beside Jesus, said, Lord, have mercy upon me, right? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? He never went to Sunday school, and he never went to church. He didn't even get baptized. And I want to say to you this morning that um, theoretically, um, if you're like this person, that could technically be true to you. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But normatively, it is not true. And unless you're in a position like the thief where something has impelled you, where you cannot go and be involved with the people of God. You can't live by the technical definition. It does not apply to you. What applies to you is the normative definition, and the normative definition is that we gather for worship. We cannot be thankful for salvation and neglect gathering in thanks with the bride of Jesus to praise and give glory each week for what he has done for us. Do you understand the central reason we gather here each week is we are declaring to the whole universe that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And we're here to worship and praise Him as Lord. The tenor of our services should be positive and upbeat. That's why I hope you sing with gusto, that you have joy in your heart, that it should be wonderful in the reassurances we have in the gospel of Jesus. And it's also declaring to the world that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, a new order has broken in, and someday that new order will overtake everything else. And we're here to praise God for what he has done. Praise God as we were singing the doxology from whom all blessings flow. Public worship should be one of the highest priorities and the greatest joys of our lives. We are commanded to gather regularly. The pattern given in the New Testament is that it's to be done centrally on the Lord's Day each week, which means it is a day that is set aside specifically for the Lord. And it's hard to say we do that if we don't do that in real practice. And it is right to do it. It is a way publicly to thank Jesus before the watching world each week for his merciful sacrifice before God for us, and that accepted by God in the resurrection. One cannot argue that he or she grasps or is thankful for salvation apart from regular participation in public worship. But beyond the command, you know, we should not need the command to gather for worship. We shouldn't need the command. Public worship should be one of our greatest joys, a time we prepare and look forward to each week. And when I was a, a young man and I I had quit going to worship for a year, and I'd gotten mad at my preacher. He was really mad at me. He just told me, quit coming if I couldn't behave. I was sitting up in the balcony a lot, and so I, I took him up on it. Y'all have heard this before. And I was way away from where I needed to be with the Lord. But when um, the process of God bringing somebody in my life, who's my, my wife, and her becoming a Christian... And the Lord doing a great work of, in my life of bringing me to renewed repentance uh, before Him. Um, just a fresh encounter with the Lord. My faith hit me in a way it really had not before. And I could not wait to be in public worship. You know, I couldn't wait. I was so excited. Still today, I don't have to be. I'm not here because it's my job. If I wasn't here, I'm going to be gathered with Christians somewhere to worship the Lord. But it really hit me when I got back involved and was serving the Lord again about how worship should be something you look forward to and exciting. When uh, I was working at the Civic Center, I was uh, assistant director of park and recreations while I was in college. I was running the softball complex and the Little League basketball programs. And I actually coached the Little League basketball team. And I met a couple of kids on my team. They were twins, a boy and a girl. And I built a little relationship with them coaching basketball and began to talk to them about church. And they didn't, they didn't attend worship. Their parents wouldn't take them to worship. And so I approached their parents about seeing if I could pick them up. Looking back on that now, that's today you probably wouldn't. But, you know, a 19, 20-year-old kid wanted to pick your kids up, take them to church. They were probably seven years old, seven, eight years old. And so they said, yeah, you can do that. So every, every Sunday morning I'd get in my green 70 Chevelle Malibu drive to the friendship community and pick up uh, the little Horton twins. And the little boy was not as uh, outward, ex outward expressive as she was, but this little girl, when I would pick them up, she was so pumped about getting to go to church, to go to worship. She was so excited. I don't to know what happened to them down through the years. I lost touch with them. But I just remember that hitting me back then about how excited she was to be in worship. 
each week. Loving to go to worship. Do you love public worship in your life? Then another thing we see in life that is we think about living thanksgiving, acts of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to Jesus in the New Testament is also related to our giving. And you might not, uh, you might hear that in the word itself. Thanks what? Giving. And sometimes when we talk about giving, we focus upon the matter of discipline and duty. But giving is not first to be rooted in those things. Giving should be rooted in thanksgiving. And it should be a joyful act. In the life of the early church, we see it became something spontaneous that they did in response to the new life people were finding in Jesus. Acts 2, 44 through 47, they were selling what they had. They were giving it for the community. And that spirit continued, became thematic in the giving of Christians. I do not have time to go through all of these two chapters with you, but I want to show you where they are. So if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, If you'll take time to read these two chapters, you'll see that the Apostle Paul relates our giving to thanksgiving, of living a life of thanks. Now, the context here is that they're taking up an offering for the poor Christians in Israel. And he is challenging them to commit uh, to finish their uh, offering. He's coming to collect it, to take it. Chapter 8, verse 5, talks about them, their giving. It says, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. Notice that. And then by the will of God also to us. And you read on down through here. He, he talks about this in the context of their love and thanksgiving. And again, I don't have time to read it. But the point that I want you to see, and I encourage you to read through it sometime this week, that this whole idea of generosity and giving, God loves a cheerful giver, it says down in chapter 9, verse 7, is rooted in the fact that we give out of thanksgiving in our lives. And that ought to be what is motivating us in how we give. Thirdly, in the New Testament, you may not have ever noticed this as well, our ethical lives, our moral lives of moral obedience to Christ are related to us in terms of living lives of thanksgiving. I want you to look at one other passage this morning, and again, my time is about gone, but I want you to look at chapter 3 of Colossians, where Paul again, talks about our ethical lives. In Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to live like this, don't live like this anymore. Then he talks about we are being renewed. And he, on down through this text, begins in verse 12 talking about the new life we're to live. And he brings it to the conclusion in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Teach and admonish one another to do what? To live righteous lives. With all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with what? Gratitude in your hearts. We're singing the faith. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Here, we see that our ethical lives are tied to thanksgiving. I want to live a holy life out of thanksgiving to Jesus. Romans chapter 1 talks about the unsaved world living profligate lives, it says they do this because they neither knew God nor glorified Him. They didn't give Him thanks. And they became idolaters. 
When we get saved and we're thankful for what we received and we're new creations in Jesus, we live lives that are molded after Jesus. That's our desire out of thanksgiving for what he has done for us and what he's going to do. And then Paul sums it up in verse 17 then about all things being done in thanksgiving. So true thanksgiving is living from the foundation of continual thanks for God's mercy and living in response to that in concrete terms. And in that sense, all of life becomes a life of thanksgiving at all times and in all circumstances. As we come this morning to the time of commitment, we're going to sing in just a moment the song, Only Trust Him. Have you really trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior? And have you truly come to Jesus because you need mercy for your sin? And that He's the only one that can help you to be reconciled to God. Maybe today is the day where you need to cry out, Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. Give me your grace. Forgive me. Adopt me. Give me new birth. Change me. Give me eternal life. I place my trust in you. I bow before you as my king. I worship you. I adore you. I submit to you. Maybe today... If you've not crossed over the line to give your life to Jesus Christ, this is the day you should call upon the Lord. And you can do that right there while we're, while we're singing. You can call upon Christ. And then for us as believers, I ask this question in closing, has life for us become a life of thanks living in our worship, both private and public, in our giving, in our morality, Is it all rooted in desiring to give proper thanks to God? If not, I challenge you to adopt that perspective today in relationship to the disciplines of the Christian life. Would you stand as we prepare to sing? Lord, thank you for giving us everything. We praise you above all for our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray today you would help each of us to make sure we have come to Jesus Not simply to receive something physically as did the nine or help, but Lord, far beyond the temporal blessings that we've come to you for eternal life. We've come to you for your mercy. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room, God, in the deepest recesses of their heart and soul, would make sure they have called upon you in that way to be their Savior. And then, Lord, help us to live a life of thanksgiving, that we live, Lord, and abide in these disciplines from the perspective of giving thanks through worship, giving through our ethical lives and all that we say and do. Drive these truths into our hearts and our minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name.